Welcome to the FDU Pathway Podcast Series, Episode 5. I'm your host, Jamie Sergener. I'm an associate at FDU, and we spend time with highly successful individuals who come from many different walks of life. The goal of this podcast is to inspire the minds of teenagers and adults alike as they consider their life choices. I'm delighted to be with Gavin Peacock, a man who doesn't need much of an introduction, but I'll I'll give him one anyway. Gavin is a former Premier League footballer, having played over 600 games and scored over 130 goals for QPR, Gillingham, Bournemouth, Newcastle, Chelsea and Charlton Athletic. He was part of the side that won the old Division 1 title for Newcastle under Kevin Keegan and also represented Chelsea in an FA Cup final in 1994. Gavin famously hit the crossbar from 25 yards out when the game was nil-nil, before Chelsea unfortunately went on to lose to an Eric Cantona-inspired Manchester United, uh, which really devastates me to say that as a Leeds fan. Gavin's also a former pundit on Football Focus, Match of the Day, Match of the Day 2, BBC Radio 5 Live, and Final Score making appearances for the BBC broadcast team at the European Championships in Portugal 2004, the World Cup in Germany 2006, uh, and another European Championships in Switzerland and Austria in 2008. Since that date, Gavin has lived in Alberta, Canada, uh, where he undertook a master's degree in theological studies and now works as an associate pastor at Calvary Grace Church alongside five elders. Gavin often preaches and teaches, counselling church members, visiting the sick, and in particular has a responsibility for building up men and growing healthy marriages. He lives with his wife Amanda, who he married in, in what year was it, Gavin? 1989. 1989, he's got it right. And they have two children, Jake and Ava. Gavin is also a motivational speaker, business speaker, and recently released his autobiography, a greater glory from pitch to pulpit and we'll make sure we include some links to the book and also some contact details for for gavin at the end when when the podcast goes live gavin thanks so much for joining us and, and welcome real pleasure jamie looking forward to it fantastic Okay, Gavin, I I was going to say what a career, but it's almost three different vocations we've got here. And there's so much to to unpack, so much to to talk about. Um, But maybe a a good place to start is you maybe taking us back to 13-year-old Gavin. What was your experience of of life at school? Well, I I went to uh, uh, an old-fashioned grammar school, Bexley Grammar School in Welling in Kent. And uh, I think I was privileged. it was, a, it was a good school, good discipline, good old-fashioned values there. And, and I think one of the great things about the school that, that I went to is the, um, the teachers, they weren't, they weren't your mates, they were your teachers, and there was a respect for the authority there. At the same time, they were approachable, they cared about the students, and it was about producing useful human beings for society, you know, well-educated, useful human beings that had an outlook to help others and serve others rather than be self-centered. And so it was a good era uh, being at school and, and, I, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, obviously living at home with my mum and dad and my younger sister, I came from a stable home life and, and, and family and really enjoyed my school days. 
fantastic stuff. And it's in interesting if you kind of think back to sort of life at school and you've obviously the, these three careers we're, we're going to sort of dig into in a little bit more detail. But do you think your life has sort of turned out sort of the same way you thought it might do while you're at school? Did you always think that, you know, football was, was going to be the path for you? Well, you know, I, I did. I, I was very focused on becoming a professional footballer from quite a young age. I, I did quite well. I mean, it was a grammar school, so it was academic. And, and I did think, well, if the football doesn't work out, I would pursue further education. And, and I would probably look to go down, probably down the path of maybe medicine, that, that direction. Although I quite liked uh, writing as well, which I actually do quite a bit of now. And, and yet, really, you know, my, my whole goal was to achieve the schoolboy dream and become a professional footballer. Brilliant stuff. And you mentioned the, the influence of your teachers in your autobiography. You mentioned your, your dad, who also had a fantastic you know, football career with Charlton Athletic. It's interesting, you speak of these role models. You also say in your, your autobiography how it is a wonderful thing to, to be encouraged. How important was your father uh, and indeed sort of teachers along the way as well on your pathway to, to becoming a professional footballer? Well, it is one of the big themes in my book is, is family and fatherhood and, you know, these, this kind of big uh, problem as well in society today is fatherlessness in the society or even kind of father figures around role models especially for, for young boys, but obviously for girls as well. And uh, I, I mentioned, you know, coming from a sort of stable home life where mum and dad both loved us well, but they also disciplined us, my sister and I. And we knew that that came from a foundation of love first. And, and so then we always knew it was for our good, even if we didn't always like it. And then with my dad in particular, being a professional footballer for Charlton Athletic for 17 years and being their captain was was obviously a great example to kind of look to, uh, not only as a, a man, but also uh, as a footballer. And my dad was one of those dads who was very present with, with his children. And uh, he, he spent time with us and he taught us and, and disciplined us along the way. And, and yet the top note must always be encouragement. You know, I think it's Alex Ferguson who, who says that, you know, if you don't have discipline, if discipline walks out the front door, anarchy will come in the window. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but encouragement must be the top note of any coach, any teacher, any father or parent. And, and that was certainly the case with my parents and particularly uh, with my father who, you know, said to me, I think you could, you could be mostly whatever you want to be. Obviously, there's certain limitations that you'll have physically or, you know, intellectually, but you, you set your mind to it, you'll be able to do things. And and that was really important to me, that encouragement uh, to, to keep persevering as well and to try things and not be afraid to fail. I yes. think that's another thing today is that we can be, as parents, too concerned with so protecting our children. We want to protect them, obviously, naturally from harm, but so there's never any exposure to them getting hurt. It's actually not good for them or ever failing so that some sports days now, they, everyone's a winner or no one's a loser. Yeah. And, they, and it's not that way in life. So my dad was a, a great role model and a, and a great teacher with that top note of encouragement. And, you know, again, I, I, I was very privileged to have that in my life. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, isn't it? I, you know, you, you sort of mentioned perseverance and being encouraged to sort of try new things, whether that's in, you know, the world of sport or other subjects at, you know, school or people in careers maybe sort of trying new things going into into new sectors it obviously has a 
strong sort of impacts in those kinds of things in life. You mentioned the, the stable backgrounds and we look at, you know, maybe people with from like less fortunate backgrounds yeah. and, and things like that. And we look at role models in footballers today, how they could maybe inspire sort of other people, maybe from different family circumstances. Do you have any uh, advice for people out there who maybe, you know, don't have a sort of natural kind of role model out there? Yeah, it's tough. Of course, you know, I can say, oh, great, I came from a stable home life. But then my mate Paul Ince, who, you know, former Manchester United England player, he, we grew up playing against each other. Uh, and uh, he had a totally different background. You know, his father left and went off to Germany, I think it was, when he was 12. And he was just mm. with his, you know, uncles or whatever, bring him up. And so many, so fatherlessness then is a bit of a problem. Role models are lacking. It's a great chance for professional footballers to be role models for young people because young people look to them. But I think mentors in, um, in life are so important. I think it kind of goes both ways. I think younger, uh, younger people need to look for a mentor, someone that they could trust, but also older people looking to mentor younger people. I think there's a kind of been a bit of a disconnect I've seen in the last 20 years where there's been a separation where there hasn't been that. Even when I was a young professional footballer, the older professionals, a few of them, they would look out for the younger ones. And the younger ones would kind of respect the elders, you know, and, and earn their stripes and, and look to the older to who have been around the block a bit more and a bit wiser to give them that uh, help. So I have a great heart for, for young folks that don't have good role models or mentors, yeah. that, that this is a great thing needed. But I mean, even if you look in the in the business world, you know, young people coming onto the into a new business, it's great if you have a culture of mentoring. I think in any kind of team, in any kind of business, it really fosters um, great growth in people and it kind of helps to create a culture that you can continue because it's passing on the baton. And of course, it doesn't rule out individuality, but it does pass on uh, learned wisdom. And I think that that's something really needed and to be cultivated in businesses and teams and obviously amongst young young people in the schools and, and so on yeah i lo lo love the idea of, of passing on sort of wisdoms taking it on board and, and passing it on to, to others you know it's yes it's one thing to have a, an inspiring england national team a couple of genuinely inspiring people you know in in that squad you look at the likes of sterling genuine kind of role model but also, as well, on top of that, if, you know, in schools and in businesses, if there are teachers and managers who can kind of play that mentoring role to help people in life, that sounds fantastic. Okay, before we head on to sort of next section and, and talk about your work in, in football and media, just a couple of quick fire questions. We're going to do this a couple of times throughout the podcast. Just get a quick fire answers from Gavin about a couple of, I hope not too tough questions, but we're going to start with... Gavin, who is the best player you've ever played with? Best player I ever played with is Glenn Hoddle. Uh, and I've played with some great ones. I've played with Zola and, and Ruth Hullett and, uh, and others. But Hoddle was just a genius. Uh, mm. His mind was like a computer. He saw every option on the field and he could deliver passes inside of the right foot, outside the right foot and, and, and mm. the same on the left. So uh, to, as an example, when I moved to Chelsea from Newcastle, Kevin Keegan called me and said, you'll learn more from playing with Glenn Hoddle in training than anything else. And, and mm. that was true. 
So oh, hard work is only the best. A bit, bit of a mentor, perhaps. Oh, very much so. Yeah, I mean, I spoke to Glenn only two or three months ago. I did his podcast talking about my book, and you know, even then, was able to express my thanks to him for making me a, a better footballer and also a decent man off the field. Is Glenn a great teacher? And he helped many people's careers. Brilliant, brilliant to hear. And yeah, highlight of your football career, Gavin? Well, these are difficult ones. I that mean, is a obviously getting get promotion for Newcastle to the Premier League. Yeah. That was great. Representing Chelsea in the first FA Cup final for 20, was it 24 years yeah. at Wembley was huge. And then leading Chelsea out the next year in the European Cup Winners Cup semi-final as captain. They were they were big moments. Obviously, the one the biggest success, if you like, was the was the Newcastle mm. getting us to the to the Premier League. But those other two were um, were very big games in terms of high profile games. The highlights, maybe I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we're going to move on to talk about your sort of career in football next. After completing your GCSEs in 1984, you had interest from Tottenham, Arsenal, Liverpool. West Ham and Aston Villa. You then signed your first professional contract with Queen's Park Rangers, who were at the time well known for promoting youth and were managed at the time by a young and bright Terry Venables. You know, if, if you can, you could probably spend, you know, probably the whole podcast talking about the intricacies of, of your career. But if you can summarize briefly, if it's all possible, your sort of career in football and, and what it meant to you, Gavin. Uh, my career in football was could be summarized as um as very satisfying mm. uh as very blessed i i played long uh at 18 years decently successful without being the best footballer ever privileged because i could do something i loved to do and would pay money to do <laughs> and yet i got paid to do it and to really understand i think i I understood what it was to be a professional footballer and to represent the teams that I played for. I knew it was more than just the game on the Saturday. It was about the people and their town or, you know, their, their area and their pride and their identity and their hope of, of glory. So to be part of that and to have people's kind of hopes. Uh, I remember, for instance, I, one time in Newcastle, I went to a social club on a Saturday night and I, I met the owner in a tough area up in Newcastle, you know, yeah. it's working class. And he said, you don't realise just how much it means to the people here when Newcastle win on a Saturday. Everyone's out, everyone's up, work productivity goes up the next week, you know, <laughs> because their hopes have been lifted because it's their team and you're part of that team. And to be that, have that, it was a privilege. And to be able, and to, be able to put on show your skills that actually thrilled people and made others want to emulate uh, and following those footsteps was was all part of that be privilege of being a footballer. Sounds genuinely magnificent. I'm sure there's people listening, um, reminiscing about what 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 could have been uh, if they'd uh, you know sort of worked at their finishing a bit better. What a dream dream career that is. Obviously, the, the high pressured environment of being a footballer. You've played in the Premier League. You've played in an FA Cup final. What is the biggest factor? that sort of helped you be successful in, in such a demanding career? I think it's, um, it's discipline and hard work. Uh, you have to have talent, clearly. You have to have a certain amount of talent. But more than that, it's discipline and, and persevering hard work. You know, you, you, you've got to put, 
have a single eye towards the goal of achieving uh, the dream. Um, and you've got to be able to persevere in the face of adversity. You know, you can't give up. And, um, and so those things combined, I think, uh, helped me to be successful. Uh, finally, I would say you have to have the, uh, then the mental strength to be able to handle it at the top level. Uh, week in, week out, year in, year out, because mm. you're always, you're always on performance. You're always on show. Then you've got new players coming into the club that are your teammates, but at the same time they want to take your place in the team. Some of them, yeah. so you've got to kind of fight off competition. You've got different managers. I played under many different managers, so that mental strength then to cope with that, which is all part of pet perseverance, I, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that that can also kind of apply to the business world or in, in the world of schools as well, you know, new, new employee sort of comes into the business, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where there's always challenges and obstacles and, you know, people that you're in competition with, let's say, how did you sort of manage mental health wise? You know, you said it was sort of a, a big thing to overcome. I mean, what was, was it kind of an internal thing or did you have to work on it or? Yeah, I think, I think I was grounded going into, football it was, you know it, there's going to be ups and downs it's going to kick you in the teeth and you know you're going to have to dig in to come back from from disappointments and difficulties and injuries I had a good home life I married young as well uh, but to me obviously I was a Christian at a young age and so football wasn't ultimate and so my identity ultimately didn't lie in being a footballer so that really I wasn't the sum of my performances on a Saturday put it that way that, that, didn't, that wasn't me, ultimately, though I loved football. And that then meant that I didn't get that kind of, oh, I'd be down if we lost or if I wasn't playing badly, but it wasn't that inordinate depression that some clearly do, do, do yeah. feel. So, you know, I think I, that's the way that I was able to, to cope with, with it. I think, you know, there is that, clearly it's more spoken about now, you know, mental health, depression, a bit of a, bit of a buzzword and clearly many people do uh, suffer from that and uh, and I want I don't want to sort of ignore that at all I think you know it needs to be talked about and guys need mm -hmm. to kind of be open about it and I think it'd be, it can be a helpful thing uh, to get a little bit of perspective because I think when people are suffering from depression that they, they they've gone into a spiral of looking inwards and they begin to lose hope and that's yeah. key is to be able to get them to look outwards and to yeah. see hope um, and so I'm glad it's being talked about a bit more now. Fantastic. And I, I like the idea of no matter, even if it's a footballer's career, which is the dream and, and the pinnacle for so many people, family, you know, friends, you know, that comes first, even above the career of a footballer. That's quite inspiring to hear in terms of the priorities of things. I guess somewhat continuing the, the theme of, of this kind of mental health, you know, in, in terms of your football career, you retired at the age of 35. You know, lots of people in the world of business, you know, go through sort of career changes or, you know, maybe even go into retirement, you know, and, and that can have a real sort of toll and a, and a change when you change your, your lifestyle so dramatically. You've got football playing with in front of fans week in, week out, and suddenly, you know, you, you don't have that anymore. How did you manage at the end of your, your football career with that change? I think a few things were, were helpful. I called time on my career. It wasn't taken away from me in the sense of, you know, I lost it because of injury or 
you know, the club, a club didn't want me. I was getting to 35 and I had a bit of a knee injury and I could have played longer and another couple of years at least, I think. But I just wanted to finish at a time where I was doing myself justice on the field. So there was that aspect of it was just a natural coming to the end of, of my particular career. Secondly, that, that I handled it okay because, again, my identity wasn't tied up in being a footballer. So when I wasn't a footballer, I lost my identity. It wasn't tied up in that. Thirdly, I had a solid marriage. You know, again, uh, and I write about this in the book about footballers and footballers' wives and the difficulty when you finish and you've been, you know, in such a high-profile uh, sport, high adrenaline every day training, and then there's the matches and then there's the adulation and the criticism and all of that, and then suddenly it's not there for you. But it's also suddenly not there for your wife. And, and, and so many footballers' marriages do suffer statistically after they finish because not only is the as the guy being tied up his identity in football, the wife's identity has been tied up and being a footballer's wife and the lifestyle that really? that has brought as well. And maybe he spirals down and then if he can't pull himself out, she loses that bit of respect for him. And, you know, but, but we had always focused on our marriage ahead of football, uh, knowing that, that that is primary over football and that we'll be there after football. And so that was a good stability. And then I would say one other thing is that I... I did then, I was thinking about the next stage and what that might look like for a little while before. I considered football management, but then I was doing a, a little bit of media work and thought, what would that look like? Is it a new, in some ways, a new era of, of football media that's coming out now, yeah. with ex-players being involved. And so I had a little bit of a goal to look at to start again. And, and so you're kind of reinventing yourself. It's, it's, uh, I think it was Sir John Hall, the, um, the chairman of Newcastle, when I was there under Kevin Keegan, uh, said that people who live in the past die in the past. You know, you've always got to be looking ahead in the next thing and reinvent yourself in the next stage. And I think that's a, that's a good word. Fantastic. And uh, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? You um, think there's sort of an extract in, in your book where, you know, you, you say that starting a new career for anyone is a daunting process. You know, you, you highlight, you know, seven things you need to succeed in starting again from scratch in any sort of form of your career, you know, and that transition from, you know, footballer in, into sort of media, you know, pundit extraordinaire, if you like, you know, obviously would have presented a new change, a new challenge, new learnings, but just thought it might be a good idea to go through those seven things just to kind of draw on some, some interesting thoughts of yours. Yeah, and I, I've, I mean, I've got the book, the page in front of me, so I'll just, I'll just rattle them off. I, I list the seven things. Number one is to have a clear vision of where you want to go and what you need to do to achieve it. Some people have a vision of where they want to go, but they don't know the steps to take to get there. And uh, within that, it might involve some tweaks along the way, but it'll stay mainly fixed. So that's the first thing about the vision and, and, and what you need to do to, to get that vision. The second thing is remember that no one owes you anything. Just because you've achieved some success in the past, it doesn't mean that people will or should make it easy for you in the future. So you don't go in with an entitled attitude. Third thing is then be a learner. Learn quickly and adapt to new things well. People who aren't entitled are actually people who think, right, I need to learn. So learn quickly, adapt to new things well. It can be more difficult the older you get when your brain isn't as agile as in your younger years. Uh, <laughs> but you need to be a quick learner. So that's the third thing. 
The yeah. fourth thing is then, because you're a learner, that you're going to get things wrong, take correction humbly. You're going to make mistakes and others will tell you so if they care about you or, or the business that you're, you're working for. The fifth thing is to then observe those who are more experienced than you in this new career and then imitate what they do. I was, an Im I was an imitator of people. You know, I talk in the book about when I was young, watching older professionals and their, the yeah. different drills. That I remember Clive Allen, great striker, and I would watch the drills he did and copy them. You know, I was my own player, but I, I still imitated certain things in those older and more experienced. The sixth thing is to aim to succeed and be willing to fail in trying. You know, every new start comes with risk, so don't be afraid to fail. The seventh is focus on producing excellence for others, not just yourself. And the eighth thing, I think you and I said there were seven, I can't remember now, but the eighth <laughs> thing is persevere, persevere, persevere. There's a few things that I think are uh, universal principles that could that be translated to, to kind of any walk of life when you're changing and, and looking towards a new position or career yeah i think there's plenty of things that you know could be inspiring kind of kind of from that and as you say it can, it can apply to any walk of life doesn't matter if you're you know leaving school if you're you know in starting your first job if you're starting your 10th job uh if you're starting a brand new career you know plenty of interesting advice there for sure and Gavin, talking about leaders as well, talking about um, inspiring people, you know, mentors in your life, you, know, you must have played for some inspiring managers. Is, is there anyone who comes to mind from, from your career who you know, might have been that, that mentor for you? You know, uh, when I look back at my career, and my, my book is, if you like, my, my biography is a bit of a study of leadership because I play for Terry Venables. I had some time with Sir Bobby Robson when I was with England under 19s. Uh, you know, Kevin Keegan, Glenn Hoddle, Osvaldo Ardiles, uh, and, and, and Jim Smith and others. And I can I learned from each of those men different uh, things in terms of uh, Jerry Francis as well. I can't forget Jerry, he's one of my <laughs> great, great uh, influences in my career. And, uh, and so what I did is, you know, even as captain, so I'm a leader in, in the team, I'm, I'm still looking at those guys that are, are the managers and, and trying to pick out what are these people good at. Um, Glenn Hoddle was the great visionary. So like he was on the field, he could see pictures and he changed Chelsea right round and, and the way that we played, the food we ate, the training ground, and the title of the Chelsea uh, portion of my book is the king's road revolution he created a revolution at chelsea and was able to impart that vision uh into the team and, and take us there kevin keegan was the great motivator of men he could work out what different people needed to make them tick and play at their best and then put them together in a, in a team so he was absolutely inspirational to to play for uh was kevin um jerry francis um a great uh, team man. He was able to kind of put people together in a team and, and even with lesser ability, make us play even above our level. He was a disciplinarian. At the same time, he cared quite deeply about his, his players and, and I, I had a huge respect for Jerry. So even just a few highlights of those guys, you can see strands of leadership there that would, again, translate to any walk of life that made these people uh, the great leaders they were in their fields and certainly great sort of mentors and uh, influences on my career. 
inspiring stuff. Is there a manager today that comes to mind who you think I would love to play under that person? You know, I think I would like to play for Pep Guardiola. Who wouldn't? I think he's he's a. Even though we look a little bit alike, he's my better look, <laughs> he's a better looking older brother, <laughs> younger brother, should I say? Um, I've got. I think that's all we've got in common is the haircut. Anyway, but you know, just what I know of him and the documentaries I've, I've I've seen of him, I think he'd be good to play for. And there's a fellow at Leeds. I think he's not too yeah, bad. I think he's quite good, isn't he? Yeah. Well, no, he's you know he's an inspiration. So what he's got them doing there. So I think you know those 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 managers that kind of Maybe that combination, you know, the, the vision casting, but also that ability to, to motivate players. Um, okay, and I think today, and, I, and this is one other thing I think in terms of football management, but again, you need in, in all that leadership is to be able to maintain respect. Uh, it's harder than ever when you've got, you, you've got 20 multimillionaires playing for you, as opposed to in my day where you had 20 players and they all needed to play on the Saturday so they might get that mm. appearance money or win bonus to pay their mortgage. There's a little bit of a difference there. Everyone's a power player now. So I think that was noted by Sir Bobby Robson that in his latter years as a manager, he maintained that respect from the players. And that's why I admire Sir Alex Ferguson so much, is that there was no one that was b bigger than Sir Alex at the club in terms of mm. sway and power there and, and, and influence. You have to be able to have that to keep to be leader of the team. Absolutely, especially with, with, with that many years as, as, a, as a leader yeah. as well. Okay, Gavin, we're, we're going to move on to sort of talking about, I guess, life post the media. As we know, we, you, um, in 2008, set off to, to Canada with your wife, Amanda, which must have been a massive change. You took your, your kids, Jake and, and Ava. I think they were, what, about 15 and, and 12 at the time? You know, it must have been, as I say, a, a significant change in your life. You know, what, what was it that, that you kind of decided to sort of move abroad at the time and, you know, pursue a career in, in the church? Well, I've been a Christian since I was 18. Um, so early on, really, in my football career, um, you know, went, went along to a local church one night, went to the youth group afterwards. I had everything the world says would make me happy. It's a great career, a bit of money you know, a bit of uh, popularity with the fans, although I was still young. Um, and yet I wasn't completely satisfied because football was my God. If I played well, I was up. If I played badly, I was down. And, and then I met a lot of young people my age who didn't have what I had, and yet they had a joy and a reality uh, in knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior that I didn't have. And, you know, I, I became a Christian at age 18. And and so I was a Christian first and then a footballer second. So, you know, believe God's put me in that career as he puts Christians in all different careers. And that's why I talk about my identity wasn't ultimately tied up in football. Football wasn't my God. And therefore, when football was gone, I still had my faith. And, um, and yet I didn't really sense a call to church leadership until around about 2006. So I was working for the BBC. I just finished the... Uh, World Cup in Germany, my career was really on the up. You know, I now was getting offers not only to do everything on the BBC, uh, but to do business talks, MC, different things. I was presenting different things as well on other channels. And, and yet my wife got very sick and she was in hospital for a couple of weeks. And, you know, as often is the case when suffering in your family happens, it can recalibrate your focus a bit. And, 
I was just thinking, reading the Bible quite a bit and praying and considering, well, what would it look like to, to be to go into church ministry, into church leadership? You know, this is a this is dealing with people's lives. This is life and death stuff, and life is short and all of these things. So I asked my church leadership what they thought, and they affirmed certain gifts in me. And of course, I'd been a leader in my life as a, and, and I enjoyed leading groups of people in football. And uh, I was a communicator, obviously on the BBC, I was able to communicate well. And so even some of those gifts as such to translate into the church ministry. But church ministry is also very much about being qualified in terms of your character. It has yeah. to be according to the Bible. And, and what I did was I started doing some Old Testament and New Testament studies at Cambridge University on a Monday. So I was, going, I was doing all match of the day, match of the day two at the weekend, and then driving to Cambridge University on a Monday. And all the guys that are there, they're all football fans. And all they wanted to talk to me about, oh, I can't believe what you said about Arsenal on the Saturday. I can't believe that. that. <laughs> and I just wanted, I'm studying, here to study the Bible. <laughs> uh, and it was quite funny, really. But it was then that I knew, I think I'm going to give this up. It's a second dream career, the media, and I would have stayed in it. But this is now burning in me, I, I think. I need to give it up. And, and that's the decision to give it up came around about 2007. And then I could have continued in the UK, but my profile was very high. So we said, what about coming away to anonymity where no one knows me and they'll just hear what I have to say from the Bible. I'll do my master's degree. We'll have three years in Canada. We knew Canada quite a bit. We've been coming here for holidays. And then we'll go back in 2011. But I was offered a position in a church here and that's that's why we've stayed yeah. so that's 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 how it all came about in a nutshell yeah brilliant stuff and i quite I quite like the sort of lesson there of you know not being afraid of change you know there's there's also as well you know certain decisions that you kind of have to make you know, thinking in a business capacity you might go for a different job which you might has a lower salary but it's it's the right move for you it's the right location it's the thing that's going to give you the the most the most joy and, and satisfaction and you've got to make these kinds of decisions yeah what what advice would you have teenagers or you know adults moving to you know maybe a new country sort of in, embracing sort of something completely new new and unknown well decision making is uh it's a difficult thing everyone wants advice on how to make decisions you know and um i think there's a few things to to consider you you have to consider, you look at obviously the, the pros of, of going and, and then of course the, the negatives of, of going as well. And you try and weigh those. And it's not just a matter of a number on one side and a number on another, because you could have one or two things on one side that are significantly more uh, weighty than five things on the other side. You need to, to count the cost very much so. You, you need to see the, the, the potential, but you need to count the cost. And I look at it, I always tell people, you know, see how it affects you uh, and, and your then immediate family, your wife and children if you're married. But then there's concentric circles as you go out. It, it affects your parents and then your siblings and then your friends and then your, your work. And, of course, to be able to consider you, the impact of your decisions on other people is very important. I think, you know, I did try and do that when we moved, but I wasn't quite prepared for the impact it had on our family and, uh, and friends when we did leave. Um, and I think to be realistic then, once you've made that decision and the decision is then to go, is that you have to be able to, again, 
persevere because the reality is it is not easy. It's not easy to move to a new location, especially if that's a new country. Even an English-speaking country like Canada has a different culture. There's new things that you're always learning. Completely. When you move, it's exhausting to, to emigrate because that first couple of years, you're always learning new things. And, you know, you've, we were 40 years in England, and now we've got to adapt. And you remember you're in their territory now, so you're a guest. So adaptability and perseverance. But if you can do that and stick it out, then, then the reward can be can be great and uh you know everyone likes that uh to some extent that idea of a pioneering spirit going in and breaking new ground and trying something new it's not always that that easy to uh to achieve but i think if you go through a right decision making process if you're ready then to give it a go and persevere and be adaptable go with the right attitude you'll have every chance of making a success of it along the way uh, and not being afraid to to, to fail in in, in trying. Yeah, ties in ties in really nicely with with some of the the pieces of advice from earlier that the eight pieces of advice yeah. given given earlier. Listen, Gavin, in in the book there there are great stories of you as a as a player on the pitch. There's uh, some quite funny stories as well of, of you as a as a pundit as well. The earpiece situation, which uh, <laughs> if if you guys haven't read the book, you'll 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 find it fantastic. Maybe you know people probably know less about you know life you know in the church where you've sort of dedicated your life and, and career in 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 these recent years. What is a sort of typical day or a, a typical week in work for you at, at the moment? Well, as a pastor or one of the pastors at our church, you know I'm involved then in um, in the leadership and decision making for the church. So even just last night we met to decide what we're going to do with regards to new measures that have been put in place for COVID, for instance, in Alberta. So how we then respond to the church, what, what restrictions are upon us, how are we going to, you know, convey that to the people. Decision-making, uh, leadership stuff uh, is in terms of meeting. Uh, in terms of then, you know, the outworking of that, I will teach in the church, either preaching from the pulpit or teaching in various sort of, uh sunday schools or men's uh groups that we have or series that i might do on marriage so there's the teaching aspect there's then also the extensive counseling so you know when you're a pastor you're you're looking after you know we have 200 people in our congregation well that's lots of different problems in lots of different people's lives at lots of different ages and so often weekly pastoral situations are coming up which are needing uh, pe- you know, meetings with people, advice, listening to them. And it takes a lot of time to listen to someone to actually get what their problem is and where they're coming from to then be able to go and give the right advice from the Bible and not just make it up out of your head, uh, but, but to give them the right advice rather than just that, try and fix them quickly without considering their situation. So it's quite tiring. And you talked about mental health stuff you know lots of people suffering especially in the last couple of years and so it, it becomes very uh emotional deep work that you're doing with the with the counseling and so that and then visitation of uh people who are sick you know as much as you can I, just a couple of years ago there was a girl a young lady in our congregation and she's waiting for a kidney transplant and she took really ill and you know i got a phone call from her husband at sort of nine o'clock at night, my wife and I went to the hospital for the next month, you know, I was up there 
mostly every day at some point. At one point, we thought we were going to lose her. And I was literally counseling this young guy who's 25 that he might be losing his wife she's, at that point. We thank God that she did survive. And, but those are the kinds of things, you know. So it's quite a, it's quite a, it's not glamorous work at all, yeah. uh, but it's quite draining. And yet it's very rewarding because what you are, you're with people in the, the great joyful moments of their lives, like weddings and babies and, you know, celebrating that. And, and then in the deep valleys and di difficulties where there's sickness and death and yeah. depression. And, and so it can be, it's very rewarding. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's really refreshing to have that kind of sort of insight and, you know, kind of hearing about a, a new perspective, you know, maybe not, not a lot of people kind of know the trials and, and tribulations of, of something like that, which again can apply to, to so many people's careers. We're all facing different situations and, and challenges. And as you say earlier, it's good to talk about, about those kinds of things if there are those kinds of pressures for sure. Just a couple more quick fire questions, Gavin, if that, if that sounds like a plan. So who would you say is the, maybe the best pundit you've ever worked with? I think Alan Hansen was very good. And, you know, he said, I asked him for a bit of advice early on and he said in his deep Scottish voice, you know, it, it's, it's not what you say, it's the way you say it. And he had that way of just giving it boom, 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 three things that are wrong with Liverpool or whatever it was. After. <laughs> so there was, there was Hanson. But as a, as a broadcaster who could do anything, radio, TV, and across the board, any division, uh, Mark Lawrenson, very yeah. good, very knowledgeable on all All Hanson was for the big games and they kept him on that. But Lawrenson could do anything and a real good, good pundit. And the inside at the BBC... They really rate, rated Loro highly. I think think it's I think it's testament that Loro's still still working with the BBC. Um, Alan Hansen chose when to retire as well, didn't he? Quite recently, so um, you know, testament to the professionalism of those guys. Who would you say was was your bogey team, Gavin? You know what? I never did well against Leeds. <laughs> I'm, saying, I'm not shot. just saying that because he, I never did well <laughs> against Leeds. I, we I was at Bournemouth. And Leeds came down in 1990 to Bournemouth. They, they rioted in Bournemouth, by the way. <laughs> and they won 1-0 and got up to the uh, Premier League. Harold Wilkinson was the manager. Lee Chapman scored a header. Vinnie Jones was playing. Gordon Strachan. And then sent us down as Bournemouth. So we went down, they went up. Mm. We were in the same division at the start of the game. There was two divisions div dividing us at the end. Um, and then even after that, you know, Chelsea days, I think we did have one good result against Leeds up there. Um, bro, but I never remember doing too well against Leeds. And even when I was a kid, going uh, uh, an apprentice at, at, at QPR, and I was taken up there in the squad, sitting in the stand and watching QPR on a miserable winter's afternoon, I watched us get beat. So I'll say Leeds. <laughs> I'm sure if you if you played um, you know in the last sort of decade or two, you probably would have had a lot more success against Leeds. I think that's fair to say. I think you've got your revenge back because I've been away to QPR on three occasions as a Leeds fan, and not even seen us score a goal. So uh, revenge has been taken. But yeah, Gavin, just I guess the the final sort of section here now, just talking about any sort of lasting messages or you know, pieces of advice? Is, is there anything, 
you know, any piece of advice you'd give your 18 year old self if you could? Huh. I, I think to really, uh, to live in the moment in terms of making the most of every, you know, every day, every month uh, that went by, because when I was only 20, 21, I, I remember speaking to an older professional. He was 27. And I thought, oh, that's really old. If I make it, if I live till I'm 27, I'll be happy with that. <laughs> now that I make it as a footballer to 27. And, he, and, you know, and he said, it goes quickly, Gavin goes really quickly and I didn't really and when you're young you think no, I'm invincible and, and, and that's it um and of course suddenly I was 27 and then I went to play on another sort of eight years after that but but that life goes quickly life is brief and you don't know what's around the corner so you need to make the most of what you do have and appreciate that um and and at the same time to learn patience as well you know they talk about the you know the impatience of youth and uh, and and i think you know there is that press to to do well and to do well early at the same time to have a certain patience in knowing that certain things come after a, a period of time and that you don't know as much as you think you know you know at 18 you don't know as much as you'll know at 30 at 30 you don't know as much as you know at 50 i'm 53 and i'll speak to 70 year olds who be telling me stuff and so the and I think with that, you will always maintain an attitude of humility and being able to learn. If you're a humble person that's always willing to learn, you'll, you'll do all right uh, in life. And I'd say finally for me, you know, being a Christian, knowing the purpose for which I was made, having my identity in, 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 in God, not football, uh, knowing that this, my best life is to come, that put everything in its right perspective and, and uh, I would advise that for, for everyone to look at, well, my book's called A Greater Glory. So there's yeah. a greater glory in life and football, fame and fortune. Absolutely. Brilliant stuff. And, um, you know, we, we, we spoke earlier about in terms of, you know, never be afraid to, to make mistakes. But were there any regrets? I suppose I could always look back at and certain regrets. And I do talk about a few of them in my football career. I think I could have leaned in when I was a young captain to a little bit more advice from the some of the older professionals that were in the team and gleaned from them a bit more. Uh, I think when I was at QPR and I was captain, I talk about uh, Clark Carlisle was a young player there who suffered massively from mental health issues that we didn't know about at the time. And, and it all broke when I was there and I just felt that I needed to have pressed in a bit more with him. And so, you know, just... So looking back and I regret that I didn't do that a little bit more, go the extra mile to just kind of look after him a bit more. And even with decision-making, you know, I, I, I wasn't quite prepared the impact that it was going to have on my family, uh, a broader family when we left the UK. So, uh, you know, it's these things where you, again, I suppose it's as you grow in maturity you uh, and, uh, and grow in wisdom, part of that is, actually becoming uh, less self-centered and more centered on others uh, and the good of others. And I think that probably even, you know, looking outside yourself a bit more, like I mentioned, you know, asking for a bit more advice from older pros, yeah. giving a bit more of myself to, as captain to, to, to someone else, considering the needs of my family and what would, how it would affect them if we move country. 
and I guess you, you know you 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 can only learn those things through experience at the same time. So you know that's why they say those have a, an old head on young shoulders often learn those things a bit quicker than others. Brilliant stuff, and um, I guess um, just a, a final thought. Um, You've written a fantastic autobiography, aged fifty-one. But what what's next? Are there going to be be more chapters to to add to the the Gavin Peacock story? <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> um, whether there'll be another book in terms of a biography, I don't know. Um, but I have got one or two ideas that I'm working on for a, a, a book. And yeah, I think you know I I'm looking at maybe doing something on on sort of how you would uh well kind of some of the stuff that we've we've talked about in in terms of strategic thinking i'm looking at writing maybe a book on strategic thinking and taking principles from the world of professional sport and, and applying that you know in terms of like doing 10 or 12 chapters with a theme on each chapter that you can take a principle from from sport and then apply that to areas of life or to businesses or to to other teams you know uh, how you make decisions how you think strategically so yeah it's, it's just in its infancy uh, at the moment but i think in the in the there's lots of books on leadership but there's not there's not so many books on strategic thinking and i think i can combine my faith and my life and careers uh, especially as we, as we live in uncertain times with so many people changing careers and such how do you strategize and whether that's family or business and and whatever it is and so that's the kind of thing i'll be thinking of next i think i think it's great that you've um sort of continued the, the path with with writing and i think it is refreshing as well that you've um you had no ghost writer or or anything like that completely your words in the book i, I think is is brilliant to, to see as well you know gavin I have to say thank you so much for your your time and you know your your insights some genuinely inspiring thoughts stories and, and principles you know that's what especially stood out was you know talking of those eight principles of, of starting from scratch which you know can be applied to so many walks of life you know we talked about mentoring mental health role models the importance of family uh, and change in general and uh, yeah, one thing that's always going to stick in my mind is perseverance, perseverance, perseverance. So, um, you know, Gavin, thank you very much for your time. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see you soon. Really enjoyed it, Jamie. Thank you.